Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. The internet is not something that you just dump something on. It's not a big truck. It's, it's a series of tubes. There are some members of Congress who have famously struggled to understand the online world. Senator Ed Markey, a Democrat from Massachusetts, prides himself on not only understanding the internet, but also for passing some of the key legislation that he likes to say helped lay the foundation for the digital revolution, such as the 1992 Cable Act and the Telecommunications Act of 1996. That's the one with the much-discussed Section 230. More recently, from his perch on the Commerce Committee, Markey has been leading fights to enhance online privacy and regulate social media. So when Elon Musk took over Twitter recently, Markey was paying close attention to see what kinds of changes the richest man in the world might bring to the platform. The two men have a little history. They previously tussled over safety issues with self-driving technology in Musk's Tesla electric vehicles. The muskification of Twitter was equally concerning to the senator. Musk quickly fired half of the company's employees, seemed to ignore a Federal Trade Commission agreement in place since 2011, and sent thousands of high-profile users searching for an alternative to Twitter. But it was when Musk unveiled a plan to sell blue check marks, the Twitter verification symbol that prevents users from masquerading as other people and corporations, that Markey started to get really worried. It was highly anticipatable that fraud could be enabled by a blue check system without safeguards, without guardrails. And then the Washington Post called and asked the senator if they could impersonate him online. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. What happened next turned Markey into Musk's chief tormentor in Washington. The Post had no trouble setting up and tweeting from a fake Senator Ed Markey account. Meanwhile, someone impersonating the pharmaceutical giant Eli Lilly announced the company would provide insulin for free and sent the company's stock tumbling. And perhaps the most celebrated account, a fake Nintendo with Mario flipping off the world. Musk really took notice of what he had unleashed when a fake Tesla account began tweeting lots of jokes about exploding batteries in his cars. He quickly pulled the plug on the buy yourself a blue check mark experiment. Markey fired off a letter to Musk demanding answers about the aborted verification system and Twitter's plans for its relaunch, which Musk now says will be on November 29th. Markey tweeted the following. A Washington Post reporter was able to create a verified account impersonating me. I'm asking for answers from at Elon Musk, who is putting profits over people and his debt over stopping disinformation. Twitter must explain how this happened and how to prevent it from happening again. Musk's response? Perhaps, he tweeted, it is because your real account sounds like a parody. Markey was not amused. 
One of your companies is under an FTC consent decree, he responded a few hours later. Auto safety watchdog NHTSA is investigating another for killing people, and you're spending your time picking fights online. Then the senator added this warning. Fix your companies, or Congress will. A few days later, Markey made it clear he was serious. He and six Democratic colleagues asked the FTC to investigate Twitter regarding its, quote, serious, willful disregard for the safety and security of its users. Well, it is the job of the Federal Trade Commission to ensure that there is no um, misrepresentation that's occurring in the real world or online. So what comes next in this escalating confrontation between Markey and Musk? And what's it like to be in a Twitter flame war with the self-described chief twit? We went up to Markey's office on Capitol Hill to find out. Hello. Hey, Senator. How you doing? Sorry, guys. Please. Okay. No need to apologize. Crazy. Crazy, crazy. Let's yeah, sit down go, and let him go through all. I want to, you know, we're all right, just, keep um, into the weeds on the Elon stuff. What's been in the back of your mind as you've watched his takeover, you know, from the early days of when it was announced that he was doing this through the sort of weird period where he was trying to get out of the whole deal. Um, I'm just trying to want to know where you you were coming from during that period. What, what, is there anything that struck you about that, that where you realized the government was going to have to pay more attention to what's going on there? I wasn't sure that he understood the role that Twitter plays in our society and the relationship that it has with the American people. I wasn't sure that he understood that compared to rocket science, (laughs) democracy is much more complicated. Uh, And that this tool, this global town square that is Twitter, is uh, essential to our society operating uh, in terms of people's ability to communicate, especially their political views. and. Uh, and I don't think he understood that there's a reason why Twitter had uh, content moderation personnel that they necessarily had to hire in order to make sure that the technology was not abused. I wasn't sure that he understood that there's a Dickensian quality to this technology, that it can enable, it can ennoble, but it can also degrade and debase. It's a good way to describe it, Dickensian. I, I usually use Lord of the Flies quality, but... <laughs> Which also is, is true. And we tout the enabling and ennobling. But there is a sinister side to cyberspace. And if we don't pay attention to it, it can have a, a debilitating impact upon our, our society. So I'm not sure that he fully understood the, the duality uh, of this technology and the need to ensure that Twitter would not aid and abet in the ability of fraudsters to use Twitter with a representation that Twitter had authenticated that the actual person speaking was that person. Because otherwise, uh, harm to our society will, in fact, occur. So to the extent to which um, the CDC says that 
you should wear masks, that's important for the public to hear with a blue check. If an impersonator gets online with a blue check and says they're the CDC, but the CDC says masks are no longer required in any circumstances, that's a real danger. And Twitter has made that possible. Uh, and that's why I called them out right in the beginning because it was clear that it would accelerate dramatically, as it did almost overnight when he created this blue check policy uh, in a way that could harm our society. Tell us about, just to go through that, because I think it's fascinating that, that what, what happened here is this, this sort of clash of him sort of clumsily stepping in in this role as CEO and firing everyone and and sort of coming in as a First Amendment absolutist and then saying, oh, wait a second, that might not work. And then, you know, not to editorialize too much, it's been a total and complete disaster <laughs> since he since he started running the company. What was your vantage point in, in terms of the impersonation of you that the Washington Post did to sort of prove a point? Were you, were you watching things closely and saying, oh, my God, he's going to kill the verification system here? And then, oh, my God, now they've impersonated me. Now I've got to speak up. But just take us through sort of like you're watching this slow motion uh, car wreck over the last couple of weeks. It was highly anticipatable that fraud could be enabled by a blue check system without safeguards, without guardrails. Um, that's why I cooperated with the Washington Post in order to demonstrate. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I think listeners will be very intrigued about that. Just take us through, like, how that w went about. Right. Well, the Washington Post approached us. We agreed that it was an excellent idea. Yeah. In order to show that if, I wish I had a, thought of this. This if was a United States senator could be impersonated, yeah. then anybody could be impersonated. Uh, and that there were no guardrails, there were no checks, there was no system in place in order to make sure that the public could not be deceived. So uh, I thought that it was an important way to say to the public, but say back to Elon Musk, that this system is broken. It's easily compromised. People are going to get hurt, uh, and you have to pull it down. And you have to understand what went wrong, and that you should not put it back up again until you can explain what the safeguards are going to be to make sure that we don't have repetition syndrome. And we go right back through the same cycle again. So that was the letter that I wrote. That, that Wait, was just, the, just to slow you down a little bit, was, was, did you get involved at all in this sort of um, in the impersonating, uh, in the sort of like editorial content of the uh, of, of the Senator Markey impersonator? In other words, did you, um, uh, or was that all on the Washington Post side in, in terms no, of no, like what they did? That's on the parody account? Yeah. Just so people know, this is Rosemary Boglin, Senator Markey's communications director. So the Washington Post, we, you know, to limit disinformation, said welcome to copy and paste anything from our official account, but we didn't want to contribute to the problem in that way, right? Yeah. Beyond the test. Well, it, yeah. 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 And what did you, so what did you learn from that, what did you learn from that, from that test? Did anything surprise you in terms of how successful they were and how easy it was and how, what a mess it was in the end? No, it was <laughs> obvious that this system was a sieve. Uh, it was a money-making, but ultimately almost de facto violation of Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act, uh, unfair and deceptive 
practices section that uh, Twitter was representing that every individual that got the Twitter check was, in fact, the person who they said they were, when it was blindingly obvious that that was untrue. So I think that was very clear from up front. It's the point that I wanted to make in order to make sure that it did not go any further than it did. But even in that first couple of days, Eli Lilly lost 5% of its value. And it is almost unimaginable what could have happened another week later uh, because there were no safeguards. So that was the point that I was trying to make up front in the same way that back in 1996, I was saying that we obviously are going to need a privacy bill of rights for Americans in order to protect uh, them. So it's it's an old issue, not a new issue. Uh, it's an issue of uh, a fraud that's in the real world that just morphed over to an online environment. But it's not that complicated to understand. So that was the essence of what it was that I was trying to protect against. So you sent him a letter. Just take us through sort of the the key questions that you want him to answer in that letter and what the response has been outside of the back and forth that you guys have had online, what what response you've received, if any, from uh, Twitter. Well, to reduce it down to its essential element, it's one, what went wrong? Please tell us. And two, what are you going to do to correct what went wrong before you put it back up again? And I gave... Twitter until November 25th to get the answer back to me. Elon Musk now says he's going to relaunch the blue check system on November 29th. So it would be, um, I think, very helpful for the American public to have the answers to my letter by November 25th so we can understand exactly what he is uh, ensuring will be put in place uh, to guarantee that There is no abuse of the blue check system the way there obviously was in the first 48 hours of its deployment. You've treated this pretty seriously, Uh, not a lot of joking around. His response to you was basically a go pound sand. He said something like, it was hard to tell your own account from a parody account. I don't know that I've seen that kind of public response to a U.S. senator who is the leader uh, on these issues. Do you remember when you first saw that response? And what did you think? I think that that's always the answer from big tech. Oh, Congress can't understand. Right. And there is some technology. of that. To be fair, there is some of that. I mean, you've seen some of these hearings where... And, pe- it, and it may be famous true. tubes may, hearing, right? It may be true with um, some members of Congress. But it definitely is not true with the person who is the <laughs> author or co-author of every major telecommunications law for the past 30 years in the United States of America, who actually happens to be <laughs> in the United States Senate and on the Committee of Jurisdiction over this technology. Do you think he knows any of that? He probably does not. And to a large extent, I'm sure lobbyists in Washington say that's the surefire way of backing off members of Congress who don't know, you know, an algorithm from Al Gore. But the reality <laughs> oh, is, is, is that is in this office, we have the smartest people in Washington on these tech issues. Wait, what do you mean that the, the lobbyists will say, what's the surest way, to just like mock them online or, and say they don't know what they're talking about? Right, to, to mock members of Congress so, as though they can't understand, you know, these very complex 
algorithms. Uh, and you have no business, no expertise, because the technology is always ahead of Congress. When right. What obviously is true, it's that you don't have to understand how the internal combustion engine works in order to say there should be seatbelts, there should be airbags, there should be brakes. You don't have to understand an algorithm in order to say that if that algorithm is written improperly, it's going to lead to discrimination against blacks and browns in LGBT community. It's going to lead to the possibility that a fraudster can get online and harm innocent people in our society. In other words, you just bring over the values of the real world over into the online world. No one wants to leave behind those values except tech companies that can make money off of the abandonment of the values that have animated our society for 250 years. And the American people have no intention on abandoning those values. And if someone goes online and then hires lobbyists to say, you can't understand this technology, they're also saying, you can't understand the values of our society. And everyone understands those values. I wonder if we could step back a little bit and you could help me understand some of the backstory of the clash that you and Elon Musk had more recently. Because there's a, there's a, there's a long history before this um, confrontation over the last uh, few days and, and weeks. He has to be given credit. What he's done in rocket science is admirable. Uh, what he's done in advancing the all-electric vehicle culture is admirable. But You were Twitter, part of some of that legislation that, that helped Tesla take off in the Obama era, right? That's right. I mean, the legislation back in 2009 that I helped to shepherd through actually made it possible for him to receive a half a billion dollar loan guarantee to keep his company afloat. And, uh, and in fact, the fuel economy standard law of 2007 that dramatically increased the fuel economy standards for our country was the first time since 1975 that that had occurred. I'm very proud of that. But that's what lifted the standards so high that now electric vehicles would have to be a part of the solution. So that regulatory scheme, of course, was helping Tesla. And not to, not to mention the, the tax credits as well. Right. So, so all of that was obviously something that I felt was important uh, as a climate hawk. And, uh, and I think now the rest of the automotive world understands how correct that perspective is. And we're moving very rapidly in this bill that was just signed by President Biden, uh, which will have a 10-year tax break for all electric vehicles, for wind and for solar, is now going to ensure that the era of the internal combustion engine is in our rearview mirror historically. So that's important, and Tesla played a big role. Although, as they move to autonomous vehicles, I've been the lead in questioning whether or not uh, many of the representations that are made by Tesla are, in fact, accurate in terms of their safety. Just this past week, uh, the New York Times did an exhaustive expose of the flaws that continue to exist in the um, uh, autopilot system of Tesla, and I have been warning about that now for several years, and I will continue to do so, uh, notwithstanding the representations uh, from uh, the Tesla Corporation that they are uh, making enormous progress. Can you give us just a little bit of an idea of what 
on the autopilot stuff and on the on, on Tesla. What has it been like working with Musk and the, his company? Are they collaborative? Do they respond, or are they just like you know, f you, go pound sand? In that sense, they're no different than any automotive company in the United States. Uh, they're right, we're wrong. Who are you to question our technology? Who are you to tell us that we have to meet these high standards? If you knew how hard that was, you wouldn't even ask those questions. So it's yeah. just a general attitude that uh, automotive companies in general have had historically. So my relationship with Tesla on that issue is one that just goes with the role that I've played for many years on auto safety issues, uh, on ensuring that there is, in fact, um, accuracy in the representation that the automotive industry makes about the safety of their uh, technologies. You tweeted, fix the company or Congress will, or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you two questions about the fix your company part of this and two, two of the sort of criticisms that you see out there. One is, and I've seen this from a lot of uh, conservatives on Twitter, is what's going on here? This is a United States senator. This is, this is the government, you know, warning a private company that uh, they're going to somehow uh, harm the company unless they, they do X, right? There's this, this argument of this is government cracking down on this, on, on this, on this private company. And there's a sort of libertarian uh, uh, stream of, of argument out there that this is just, this is scary, right? That's one criticism. The other is, and I just want to ask you how you think about the First Amendment, if, if there are any, the First Amendment issues involved with some of this regulation. Well, obviously, a private sector company is not free to engage in any activity it wants to, that enhances its profits, even if it harms individuals within our society. No company is free to do that. And so to the extent to which Tesla wants to put autonomous vehicles on the street that can harm people, it is the job of Congress to make sure that if they put those vehicles on the street, that they are safe. We have to ask the questions on behalf of innocent Americans so that the profit-making goals of the company do not result in harm to the general public, the All innocent right. general that's public. A, that's a car company. The same thing is true for Twitter. Um, Twitter has been on privacy probation since 2011. Uh, and that is because Twitter had promised that there would be a complete protection of all of the information that was being gathered by the company. And it turned out that had not been the case. So a company cannot represent that your information is being protected, and then that trust is violated. That is the job of the Federal Trade Commission. That is why we have Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act prohibiting unfair and deceptive practices. So it's the job of Congress to make sure that those laws are protected. It's the job of these agencies uh, to ensure uh, that the laws are upheld. And notwithstanding the brilliance of people who might be out there in the private sector, notwithstanding the wonderful nature of the technologies, where they do harm, it is the business of Congress to make sure that the business of the private sector 
is in fact operating consistent with the public health and safety of our society. So that's not anything other than why we have a United States Congress. And, uh, and that's all I was calling for, just a full adherence to the laws of our, of our uh, nation on auto safety and on online safety. I think sometimes with the online safety portion of this, because they're media companies, in, in a sense, it gets people's um, uh, libertarian hackles up because say you had said that to the New York Times, right? Or say Donald Trump had said uh, when, when, when he was in office, you know, New York Times, fix yourself or the government will. I think that's the kind of, um, I'm not saying I, I agree with this stream of thinking, but I'm, 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 I think that's where the it starts to get more complicated. Should we look at Twitter in, in that sense? Or you seem to, you look at it in a pretty much a, it's a private entity. It's a multi-billion-dollar company. It's doing harm. We, the government, has a responsibility to regulate it. I'm just curious if any of those First Amendment issues are sticky when it when it comes to social media company rather than a car company. If Joe Blow says, "Don't wear a mask. You don't need one. Don't worry about COVID," then people can see it's Joe Blow saying, "Don't wear a mask." If Joe Blow for $8 is able to say it's the CDC and Twitter certifies that it's the CDC and Joe Blow then says, don't wear a mask, but it says CDC on the tweet, that's dangerous. That's Twitter enabled. So that's different from speech. Joe Blow can say whatever Joe Blow wants to say within certain boundaries, okay? Can't be, can't be incitement to terrorism, but can say what they want for the most part. But you can't say it if it's coming as a representation that it's Eli Lilly or the CDC or other entities That's that not people trust. Speech. That's different. Yeah. And if Twitter enables that misrepresentation, then that can be harmful. On the FTC, the FTC put out a statement saying we're watching this very closely. It was once the discussion got rolling about whether they were violating their consent decree, the FTC responded publicly. And uh, I know a lot of observers said, wow, that is something that the FTC doesn't always, always do. So this is really serious. Two, so two questions. One, how do you see that move by them? And then two, have you um, communicated with the FTC in any way to ask them to you know, look, look more closely at this? And do you have confidence that they're stepping up here? I think the FTC took note of this themselves. And, uh, and like, I do you think he has something to worry about with this FTC, FTC uh, consent decree not being um, followed? Well, it is the job of the Federal Trade Commission to ensure that there is no um, misrepresentation, you know, yeah. um, that's occurring in the real world or online. That's their job. Yeah. So... It took a while for people to understand this back in the late 90s, right after I was the Democratic author of those uh, telecommunications bills. I actually met with the Federal Trade Commission chairman, and I asked him this question. If someone created a website here in Washington, D.C. for information on HIV AIDS, and then thousands of people went online to get that information, and then that website sold that information to all the insurance companies 
in Greater Washington, would that be a violation of Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act of unfair and deceptive practices? And they hadn't even thought about it Hmm. because it was so new. So today, the Federal Trade Commission is much more sophisticated and it understands. And they've sort of stepped in as the the only regulator. Which they have to, which is what I told them back in the 90s. This is going to happen. There are going to be privacy violations. There is going to be misrepresentation. There is going to be everything that happens in the real world is now going to happen online. And it's going to have to be policed where it has a deleterious impact uh, upon families in our society. And so it's altogether fitting and proper for the Federal Trade Commission to announce it's going to take a look at it because the first blue check went to the CDC, understandably so. Because you want an authenticated place where people can go and get information about their health. And you don't want any Joe Blow to be able to pretend that they are uh, the CDC or other entities in our society or individuals. Do you anticipate that Congress will be asking Musk to come and, and testify about what's been going on at Twitter? We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. We'll see what his response to my letter is. We'll see what his announcement is on November 29th. We'll see what the guardrails are, what the safeguards are, whether or not he has heard the uh, American public in terms of what their expectations are for Twitter moving forward. And at that point, we'll be able to determine whether or not we're going to need actual public hearings. So much will determine on what happens by the end of this month. Got it. So it's possible, but you're sort of waiting to see what the response is here. And the last question is, what would it take for you to abandon Twitter? Like a lot of other politicians, you use it. I'm sure it serves you, serves you well. I know a lot of journalists are having this conversation right now. Like, should we even be on there? Is our private, is our, is our 10 years of DMs safe on there? A lot of newsrooms have, have told journalists to stop DMing sources. I mean, you know, we're, we're pretty lucky where we are in terms of that. Imagine being in Iran uh, one of these other places where Twitter is an important medium. Among your colleagues, do you see it deteriorating to the point where you say, you know what, this is no longer no longer makes sense for me to be on, on this medium, or you haven't really thought about it yet? It's very early in the Elon Musk era. <laughs> um, there is a very public conversation going on right now between the Congress, the public, and the Elon Musk-controlled Twitter. A lot is going to depend upon what his response to that is, what representations he can make that he understands the need for security, for safety, for trust to still be at the heart of the Twitter business model. And I think that is largely going to determine who stays on and who leaves Twitter in the future. But that is yet to be determined because we do not know what his response is going to be until he answers my letter. And if he does, relaunches on November 29th, this blue Twitter uh, site. So that's still to be determined. And I think at that point, a lot of people are going to either be reassured or will have to reassess uh, whether or not they are going to stay on Twitter. Senator, thanks for talking. It's a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it. Well, glad to be with you. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. Adam Allington is our senior producer. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. 
Brooke Hayes is the senior editor of audio at Politico. Jenny Ament is the executive producer and head of audio at Politico. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Thanks for listening. 